Hello. Welcome to the Science Basement Podcast. Yes, and Stephanie, are you excited for today's topic? I am super excited because it is a very special guest and a very special topic. And it's Christmas season, so there's too many good things. Yes, everything is nice. <laughs> and it's the first time that we are broadening our, our topics in science and we are going to social science. Yes. Yes. So this week, our guest is Anastasia Diatlova who is a PhD researcher in sociology at the Faculty of Social Sciences of the University of Helsinki. And her research focuses on the daily experience of life and work of Russian-speaking sex workers in Finland. Welcome, Anastasia. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Never done a podcast before, but nervous. <laughs> no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah, so we're really excited because, like um, Erika said, it's her first time with a social scientist. So in really simple words, what does your research entail? Well, um, in my research, I look into how Russian-speaking women in Finland who do sex work organize their daily life and work. And in order to do that, I have conducted interviews with women who do this work. And I also did some participant observation in several clubs when this kind of work is done and in an NGO that helps women uh, who work in the field of commercial sex. Um, maybe one uh, good point to start with would be uh, if you can explain what's the legislation in Finland mm -hmm. with respect to this topic. Right, yes, of course. Um, so sex work as such... Uh, is not illegal and um, Finnish legislation mostly focuses on what they define as prostitution which is exchange uh, of money or other goods for a sexual act or equivalent and none of this is illegal but most of the things surrounding uh, sex work are so for instance it's perfectly legal to get money for sex but it is illegal to advertise it is illegal to sell sex in public it is illegal to um, to live off um, earnings of sex work uh, you're not allowed to rent an apartment for instance or any kind of space for the purpose of selling sex um, and more recent legislation that has passed, you're not allowed to buy sex from somebody who is a victim of pimping or trafficking. But this legislation has been a bit a bit of a problem because it's not really clear how to define it in the court of law and how to prosecute people. Did they know? Did they not know? It seems to kind of inquire into intent, which is quite hard. So was it that before this new legislation came, If you didn't, you had to prove that the person who was paying for the sex of a victim of trafficking or pimping was completely aware of that situation if you could, um, if you wanted to prosecute the buyer. But now it's, but now he doesn't even have to be sure. So is that, is that, is that what the problem of this new legislation that it makes it so unclear that it's harder to find or identify traffickers? Well, uh, I, I'm not really a legal scholar, so I can't say exactly, but 
it would seem that the law as it stands now, um, it suggests that it doesn't matter if a person who buys sex, whether they knew that this person was trafficked or pimped or not, that they're guilty just because they bought sex from somebody who was pimped or trafficked. But this was part of a attempt to change legislation in a broader way, uh, because in Sweden, for instance, they have made all purchase of sex entirely illegal. So instead of prosecuting the sex worker, it is the client who's being supposedly prosecuted for buying uh, sex. But in Finland, such a sweeping uh, law did not pass. So they made uh, sort of a a mini version of that. So you, as a client, would only be prosecuted if you're buying sex from somebody who's pimped or trafficked. Okay, what I'm trying to ask is like how, how you know, with like with drugs, when you pro- prohibit something, how is that any better? At- <laughs> well, that's the problem, that one of the drawbacks of such a law is that it really doesn't doesn't seem to do much. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the studies in Sweden are a little bit confusing uh, in terms of outcomes of the law. Uh, Some research has been done on it, but it's not clear exactly what kind of impact it has. Some um, researchers have claimed that this new law has had uh, a very big effect on street work, that street work has almost disappeared in Sweden. But at the same time, it it's the age of the internet uh street work has been declining for for the past 10 years everywhere mm-hmm. because most people find it much easier to advertise online yeah. and safer too um but then on the other hand other research that's coming from uh sweden seems to suggest that for sex workers things have become more dangerous and uh they find it harder to find sort of socially acceptable clients because if men are afraid to buy sex or if women are afraid to buy sex then sort of the the more law-abiding citizens will not buy sex but those who are maybe don't care or more dangerous individuals they will continue buying sex but your work specifically um, is looking at russian-speaking citizens and it's very interesting um, to look at the work. Um, They're not all citizens. Just uh, sorry, r- Russian-speaking workers. Uh, yeah. And what was interesting was what you were um, describing, whether they were citizens or not, or 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 Finnish ethnically Finns living coming from Russia, and all this diversity of ethnicity, but just that their perceived Russianness was affecting their quality of life. And also what it what and try, and of them trying to build a home yeah. because of the revelation. So could you go a bit more? Um, yes, um, it was interesting when I started doing my research. I wanted specifically to focus on Russian speaking women rather than Russian because talking about Russian as a category is very difficult because um, if you take Russian as a citizen, then you maybe lose the possibility to see people who also experience the world very similarly to Russian citizens, but who don't have Russian citizenship. If you look at ethnicity, ethnicity is a very contested sociological um, 
concept because it's it's very difficult to define and very often somebody might be seen as say ethnically russian but they don't identify as ethnically russian so that creates an ethical dilemma for you as a researcher and also it kind of makes the data less not precise maybe but reliable yeah, yeah. i think it it does make the data less reliable so i decided to study uh women who speak russian and that way i could look at people who were russian citizens from russia russian citizens from estonia estonian citizens who identify as russian because they feel that they speak the language that they have a connection to russia or people who have a variety of different other citizenships or identities um, that they may be from russia but they don't consider themselves ethnically russian they could be tatar they could be they could be uh, actually Finns from Russia who migrated here in the 90s as um, this big move to bring back ethnic Finns. But what they do have in common is that they they tend to speak Russian and they become associated in Finland with a broad understanding of Russianness, especially how it's perceived in relation to gender. That there are um, assumptions about what Russian people look like, sound like. It's uh, for women. It's very much a mode of dress, a mo- mode of sexual behavior, uh, accents, and an overall look. And so I was trying to look how that affects their life, even if they are not necessarily Russian citizens. In fact, they may be here because they are ethnic Finns, but because they are perceived by the general society as if they were Russian, it colors their experience of life in Finland. And this would be tending towards more negative association. It tends to be fairly negative, yes. Um, I think you also mentioned that Prior to the 90s, there wasn't so much of sexual work in Finland. And then with the opening of the Soviet, or yeah, that... The, f- the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah the, okay, the fall of the Soviet. So then um, Russians migrate and start working or introduce this. Um, so yeah, um, according to uh, research in Finland, it seems to suggest that before the 90s there was uh, sex work in Finland, but it tended to be fairly invisible, that it was very much private arrangements, uh, very much out of sight. But what happened with the 90s is uh, the increase of visible sex work. And because quite a lot of people from former Soviet Union, so Russia, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, they came to Finland to work, um, very often in sex work. There was um, a connection made in media and in public discourse between Russianness and sex work, specifically for women. Mm-hmm. And now we see that um, a, high, a really high percentage of foreigners in Finland are Russian and how their lives would be affected because of this 
mis concept misconception or misidentification yeah um i mean in general there seems to be this kind of slippage or identification of specific traits that are russian and specific traits that are gendered as female and russian with commercial sex and it's not necessarily with uh, sex work proper there there's also association with uh, marriage but uh, marriage that's not for love but for money kind of thing so kind of there's this almost like a um, spectrum of a gold digging foreign uh, bride to a sex worker okay and then you talk a lot about homeness or create the, this creation of a home or or the peril of not being able to create a home because of the you mentioned you can't rent a, a room if you're going to use it for um, selling sex yeah can you go a bit more into that sure so one of the things that i noticed when i was interviewing um the women that i spoke to um they talked a lot about um owning uh, a home back home in their home country whether it that was Russia for them or or for some it was Germany or somewhere else uh, in Europe and for them that was a very big part of feeling at home that they can have uh, ownership uh, legal ownership of a space and uh, I thought that was a very interesting aspect of how for many of them coming to Finland and working as sex workers they were ma- they were able to earn enough money to buy private pro- property in their home countries but in finland they constantly had issues with renting an apartment and they couldn't necessarily buy an apartment either because it was prohibitively expensive or because they weren't citizens or because their income was not um, sort of it wasn't really going through a bank so it created the sense of uncertainty and so i wanted to interrogate this idea of belonging and how belonging can be very closely related to material possessions and how it's important to own something and specifically a place to live and know that this is your space and no one can kick you out and no one can take it away from you and that you have uh, created the space yourself through your uh, earnings And to me, that was an interesting aspect of their lives that uh, on the one hand, sex work allowed them to create this uh, place of belonging in their home country because it gave them the money to buy these flats. But at the same time, here in Finland, there was a very complex relationship to belonging that they couldn't feel like they truly belonged because they didn't have that home that they could call their own partially because of their engagement in sex work and because they had to change apartments and they they had to be very careful about how they existed uh inside the apartments that they always had to be very quiet or make sure that the neighbors don't notice what it is that they do in those apartments so they didn't feel like they could just relax in those spaces and do things for themselves and your research is also related to migration Yes. Do you see any difference between because okay, we know that in the EU we don't have borders. 
So, for example, if someone is coming from the Baltic countries, there is no borders, but from Russia instead there is a border. Are there any differences in these dynamics? Um, I would say yes, uh, at least among my interviewees, those who had uh, EU citizenship, things were a lot easier for them, that they they felt like they could cross borders quite easily. Um, and even if they had some discomfort with border crossings, uh, it was still possible for them to cross the border without too much interference. Uh, for those who didn't have European citizenship, things became much harder. And they, at least one of my interviews talked a lot about this kind of constant anxiety that she feels as she crosses the border and how this anxiety follows her into the country um, that she can never feel quite safe because if she is caught by the border guards or the police, she'll be kicked out of the country or she will not be allowed to enter. And because she is a Russian woman and alone and crossing the border, she felt that she was under a lot more scrutiny and um, the border guards interrogated her in a certain way and she was constantly kind of negotiating how she can be here and do sex work, but at the same time not be noticed. Mm. Is there a male sex work environment? Uh, yes, yes, there is. Um, it's not very researched, though, I have to say. Um, as of now, I don't know of a single study in Finland that would focus specifically on male sex work. Um, but in general, it seems to be that male sex work is not really treated the same as female sex work and research, so to say. Uh, it's kind of, um, it seems that female sex work tends to be seen as a social problem when it's researched. And male sex work tends to be understood as part of uh, more like gay culture and related to that rather mm -hmm. than seen as an, um, like a, a problem of law, mm -hmm. law and order. But as far as I know, um, there is uh, some male sex work in Finland. But again, it tends to be organized slightly differently from female sex work. Okay, but the regulations would apply to in just in general set the same. It's not defined. As it, it's gender. not. No, it's not technically gendered. Okay. Um. And yeah, so you you said that uh, already a lot of times during this uh, this episode, uh, you collect your data a lot through interviews, which is something that, for example, for me and Stephanie is is strange because we we don't deal with people in our, <laughs> in our daily research. So how does it work? How do you find the people to interview? And and yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. For us, when you look at your data, your data looks back. <laughs> so in that sense it's a little bit different but so okay interviews is a method um it's it's quite complex you can do one-on-one -on -one interviews which are uh, are quite common um you can do structured interviews where you have questions written down and you can have unstructured interviews which is basically you and I are sitting in a cafe and we're drinking coffee and we're just talking. A bit like what we're doing now. Exactly, exactly. Okay. <laughs> in fact, um, 
if a social scientist wanted to, they could just collect all of the <laughs> interviews you guys have made and analyze those. <laughs> and that would be perfectly doable data. But yes, very much just chatting about things. Um, and you can also have group interviews, like focus groups, where you talk with a large group of people about a specific topic. And you tend to either record it uh, using a tape recorder or you would write things by hand, depending on um, on who you're collecting data from. So specifically in your case, how do you find the people to interview? Right, yes, important. So when you are studying a group of people who are sort of not very easily located, there are several yeah. methods you can use. So one of the ways you can do it is uh, called gatekeeper. So you find people with access to the people you want to interview. So these could be social workers, these could be police officers, these could be um, activists in the sex work uh, field, for instance. That's one method. So the idea is you find the gatekeeper, and through that gatekeeper, you can find access to people who you want to interview. Another method is snowball uh, method. And this is where you, you find the first person and then you ask, can you recommend someone that I can interview? And they recommend the next person and then the next, the mm -hmm. next, the next. Uh, I personally uh, try to use a variety of methods. So I managed to get uh, to know some people for my interviews through an NGO here in Finland. Um, and then I tried the snowball method from there. And I also went to places where people worked, so clubs, and I would approach them directly and ask them if they'd be interested. Uh, and because some of them already knew me from uh, the NGO, I was a bit more accepted. And I also tried phoning people, uh, but that wasn't a very successful method, and it's a little bit ethically unsound so I decided not to do that in the end but yes uh, uh, sort of a mixture of gatekeeper and snowball mm -hmm. method is okay. how you find the people and since your topic is a kind of sense sensitive topic does it happen that people just don't want to talk about it yep that's very common you can approach somebody and Tell them about your research, what you're trying to do, and they can say, like, no, I'm not interested. And at that point, you just have to turn away and walk away. Mm -hmm. And it kind of uh, is part of the ethical procedures in our work. I think social sciences in that way are a little bit more like medicine, that you have to be very careful and design a very sound ethical procedure of how you approach people. Uh, how you interview people, what you ask, what you don't ask. Um, one um, kind of method uh, scholar recommends using what they call microethics, which is not just about informed consent and voluntary participation, uh, but also when you're interviewing somebody or you're in the field with somebody, you have to be very attentive to every single little cue that they give you, you watch their faces, you watch how they speak, and if you feel like they're hesitant, you, you don't press them. Mm. And um, yes, of course, in, in social science, there is this approach 
that you have to have uh, informed consent. So your interview participant has to know what it is that they're participating in and they have to consent to it while understanding the consequences of this research. Um, anonymity, that you have to make sure that they cannot be identified once you publish your data. Um, and uh, voluntary participation, which means that uh, they cannot be pressed. This is why there's sometimes considerations about something like using gatekeepers. You have to think about, well, does the gatekeeper have undue influence on this person? Did this person have a possibility to say no to this interview? Mm. And you have to consider whether you want to proceed with such an interview or not. And probably you shouldn't if you feel like the person would not have been able to say no. Mm. For example, if a policeman asks for cooperation. Yes, exactly. So I didn't use any police uh, as gatekeepers in my research because I felt like that, that would be unethical. Um, I used the uh, help of NGO, but at the same time, they just kind of gave me possibility of speaking to some people who were initially interested in my research, rather than introducing me and saying, like, this is Anastasia, she's a researcher, go talk to her in a room for 30 minutes. So I, I tried to avoid that. Mm. And how does your presence affect what they say I, does it make it any easier that you're a Russian speaker as well well that's initially I thought that it was going to help I was under the false misapprehension that being a Russian speaker and they being Russian speakers that it will immediately create rapport but uh, surprisingly to me and this was an interesting finding it actually made made it harder in some ways it was really difficult to gain uh, trust. They couldn't quite understand who I was and who I was working for because I was Russian, but then I claimed to be uh, from a Finnish university. I, I didn't speak any Finnish, but I spoke English. And so for many of them, they were a little bit uncertain whether they could trust me because I am Russian. They weren't sure, like, is this going to go back to the Russian community here? Is this information going to end up with the Russian government? So there was a lot of mistrust towards me, which I feel a Finnish researcher would not necessarily mm -hmm. face because a Finnish researcher is quite a simple person and they could easily kind of place a Finnish person somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit of a enigma to them. Mm -hmm. So I had to work quite hard to kind of show them that... Uh, I'm on the level and that I'm, I am who I, I say I am. Mm -hmm. How do you separate a, uh, um, the story of, of <laughs> the story of their lives? Isn't that like a One Direction song? <laughs> delete that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you separate getting a glimpse of their lives and what they're trying to paint for you? Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting question because it's not necessarily possible to separate and then in social sciences it's not always really it's neither possible nor necessary because the idea is that people tend to have a different way of speaking to different people in their lives and so you can never be quite sure uh, if what they're telling you is quote-unquote objectively true 
but they do draw on discourses and they do draw on certain narratives and you can see patterns in how people speak and then from these narratives and patterns you can build an overall picture mm -hmm. of what it is that you're seeing in the field mm -hmm. but of course people will tell you something different to what they will tell to a social worker but also something very different to what they will tell to their parents or children or loved ones so I guess it's more about kind of being aware that this is a very particular kind of situation and that you can't assume that um, what is happening here in the moment is true universally if if mm -hmm. that's if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. And with your research, what is your aim? What are you trying to show? You're stealing all my questions oh, today. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Now you've asked it. Um, well, I, I think I wanted originally, at least when I started doing this research, I, my goal was very much to demystify uh, commercial sex in Finland, specifically as it comes to Russian speakers, that I wanted to show the very banal everyday experiences of the women who do it and kind of show just how everyday their experiences are. And by showing that, to show how the overall uh, structures of Finnish society affect their everyday life, how uh, their, the fact that they're being perceived as Russian, for instance, affects them in their everyday life, and how they deal with, uh, with the police or with the social workers or with the health system in Finland, that it's both very ordinary, but also how the overall social influences and social structures affect and structure their everyday life. Would Could your research be used um, for this legislation to amend it, for example? Well, I definitely hope so. I think uh, many social scientists get into this gig hoping mm -hmm. to change the world and kind of like, finally, we will have hard evidence that this is the way that things should be done, that this is the the correct way that this will benefit people and make their lives easier but i think in the end i just i hope that this will not be used for evil instead of good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i guess that that's true for everyone that we all hope that whatever we find is not going to destroy the world um, but i do hope that maybe by showing the everyday life of the women I've interviewed, it would influence uh, legislation, but also the public debate about commercial sex in Finland and maybe move it away from this sensational images of trafficking, etc., and maybe force the, the media and the politicians and just people in general to think a little bit more carefully about what structures life of somebody who's a migrant and who does sex work in Finland. Well, at least I can see for one thing if about this Russianness if it extends outside Russian workers that you don't want to be just neg negatively labeled 
because of this brushiness in general anyway mm. so that um, legislations that would favor um, if you're seeking a job that your name is not included for example but that yes. would be for example a positive consequence of research like yours and the other one is at least maybe I'm missing something but the idea of 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 having or allowing sexual work and regulating it so that it is safe for everyone involved makes to me more sense than prohibiting it but maybe mm-hmm. I don't no. know Missing something that Sweden has. <laughs> well, I would definitely want to see a world in which all legislation that pertains to sex work would be based on recommendations made by sex workers themselves mm-hmm. and advocacy groups com- comprised of sex workers. Mm-hmm. I think that would definitely be an important step forward if we legislate based on on what people themselves who do this work, what they think would be best for them. Yeah, that's true. That's a very positive note. Yeah. <laughs> so on this positive note, we can go to part two of our, of our episode. Stephanie, yes, Stephanie, tell us about Cytagory. So our Cytagory game where we have five categories and we have two minutes to uh, find a word for each one using a random gener- generated letter. Um, and our first category is Data collection methods. So hopefully we'll discuss a little bit between the difference in social and natural sciences. The second category is Russianness, because we just have to include this word. The third is getting a life while getting a PhD, because we're all you know PhD students and we do have a life kind of outside it. <laughs> we do kind of, kind of. Kind of have a life, yeah, sure. Um, four is bad questions to ask in a research interview. So hopefully we can be a bit funny there, but not politically incorrect. <laughs> and number never, five never. <laughs> is ways to construct your home abroad. And this is quite nice because we're all foreigners. Yeah, it's true. Okay. So if... Um, yeah, so Anastasia, if you click on the on the bowl in there, it will generate a random letter. P. 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 Okay, okay, that's excellent. Okay. <laughs> so let's put the timer. Okay, three, two, one. I did a disaster with the phone. Go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Participant observation. Awesome. Participant observation. Okay. Yes, you mentioned You will that. explain a bit more what, will, what yes. this is after, after. But now we have two minutes, so... Russianness. Uh, Russianness. Uh, uh, yeah. No, wait. Let, let, me, let, check, let me check the other categories. Getting a life while well, getting, getting a PhD. A PhD. Mm-hmm. Parting. 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 Bad questions to ask in a research interview. Mm. Um, and, the other, and the last one was voice concentrates your own abroad. Potpourri. Parking lot. Parking lot, yeah. Parking lot. To construct plants. Plants. Plants, yes. Yeah. Plants and Better potpourri. than a parking lot. <laughs> Especially since in Finland, like a lot of people don't have a car because our public transport is so good. Oh, true. bad questions to ask in a research interview. Please state your, um, you know, whether you're single or. Yeah. Oh yes, your relationship status. Oh yeah, that's yeah, just... yeah, that's a pretty good, good bad question to ask. Yeah, very bad question. Or um, please state your full name for the record. That's not always oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> full name. What else? Okay, oh, Russianness. Some some food that starts with P. Uh, but I'm not the Pranik. Oh, otherwise Privet. 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 It means high Russian. Oh my god, okay, I'm trying to write. Okay, I'm not gonna write. No, that's correct. <laughs> that's Privet. correct. Yes. Okay. okay. Oh, we did it. 
How much time do we have left? 20 seconds. Oh, we were great at this one. I will stop it. Stop it. No. So, um, participant observation. Yeah, participant observation. What is that? Okay, well, that's actually very interesting. So, um, social sciences very often, especially something like sociology, borrow heavily from um, anthropology. And participant observation is a method of collecting your data by being involved in daily activities of people that you collect data from. So say I want to study the inner workings of a supermarket. So I go there each day and I just sit there and observe and I write everything down. And I will be the creep of the supermarket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you have to ask permission first. Like <laughs> ethical research people, ethical research is important. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or alternatively, to be even more... Um, involved as a participant observer, you can get a job at the supermarket mm -hmm. and be part of the daily routine of the work. So basically being an infiltrator. Indeed, yes. Okay. But in all of this, you have to always stay. You do you have doing. to, yes. Okay. Um, there are some people who believe in covert uh, data collection. They think that it gives you better data, but it's highly unethical. Uh, you you always have to make sure that in social sciences that people that you research, uh, they know uh, that you're there, that you're a researcher, what the research is, and they always have to be able to not participate in your research if they don't want to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are social scientists who just work with like uh, media texts or or with something with statistics. So it's a little bit different for them, of course. Okay. So that's what you were talking about. Um, you do interviews and participant observation. Yes. Yourself. Cool. Cool. Let's go to the second round. Yes. Okay. Second round. Do I just press it here again? Yeah. Yes. Okay. W. W. Oh, oh come on. That's oh. impossible. Nothing starts with W. Well, wow, wow, wow. well, the letter is spoken and we have to do our best. Three, two, one, now. Because we can't interview with data. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Data collection. Ugh. Web, web search. Oh, web, yay. Yes. yes, web search. Wikipedia told me so. <laughs> <laughs> Wet collection. Is that such a thing? What? Okay, whatever. Um, Russianness. Um, not, nothing in we, Russian we, starts with a double. Yeah, we got the end to that. Getting, getting a life or getting a PhD. For you, it's Wolfie. The oh, name yeah, of your dog. Wolfie, my dog. Aww. That's true. Wolfie. So sweet. We always talk about Stephanie's dog. <laughs> Water skiing? I don't know. Bad questions. Oh, why? Oh, yeah, this is easy. Why, what, why? Oh, oh this one. No. <laughs> I don't have it anymore. Bad questions to ask in a research interview. Why are you so beautiful? <laughs> oh. Yeah, that, that is super inappropriate. That is pretty inappropriate. <laughs> what? Why are you so beautiful? <laughs> Um, what if I give you money to change your answer? <laughs> That's a bad, you know, that you should not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Ways to construct your home abroad. For you, it's still woofy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But we have to change. So now it will be waffles. No. No, that's to construct your room in Belgium, not in Finland, not abroad in general. Everybody loves waffles. That's true. But they are, they are from Belgium. <laughs> and they're warm and comforting. Warm, warm place. Warm, yeah, warmth. Oh, warmth, that's it. I think especially in Finland, it's very important to have warmth. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, so now we only miss the Russianness. Okay, that's gonna be hard. Russianness and maybe some other data collection. Oh, we have web search. Okay. Web search, it's perfect. Wikipedia told me so. Wikipedia. Well, that's not really data collection mm -hmm. method. Um, Unless you're trying to analyze Wikipedia, then you can look at Wikipedia's texts. Yeah, as a collective uh, knowledge gathering. We didn't find the Russianness. Okay, but it was it was sort of okay. Hey, we 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 did we did super well for being a W. That's true. That's true. No wait, I mean, Stephanie, why were you skeptical about web search? I mean, it depends on what you are doing, but no, yeah, especially sure. for example, example, and correct me if I'm wrong, Anastasia. If you're there are a lot of researchers, social research. I know something about yeah. social <laughs> science. A lot of social researchers are done about the YouTube comment sections. Oh. And for that, you do the web search for collecting data. That's true. Correct me if that, I'm wrong. That is correct. There is a lot of uh, online research these days. Actually, I do that too. When some there's like a, a, a tweet or a blog post about climate change, and then look at the comments. So you skip the trolls part. But then you go into the questions that are, you know, the ones that are really saying, but how are you sure because of this? And then it's really, it, at least it helps me to think of, um, to research what people are asking because then it'll be most likely that they'll ask me some other time and then have a good answer for them. That is a very good point. But let's go on to third. Okay, third round. R. R. It was going towards Q and I was very, yes. very scared, but unfortunately it's R. Now I think we can do well with R. Three, two, one, go. Uh, Data collection, research. Research. <laughs> <laughs> How do you collect your data? I do research. Yes, I do research my data. <laughs> Radar. Uh, I don't know. Let's go. Let's Radar. go to that after. I feel like I'm really not good with quizzes. Russianness. With Russia. Russian. Oh, Russia. What? Russia starts with. R. Russia starts with R. You know the the letters were. What? Russian T. T. T is important. Yeah, and I think that only British and Russian people put milk in their tea. I don't know what that. Great. I have to say, I don't know a lot of Russians who put milk in their tea. There are some. I oh, will okay. not I know, make I, any claims about. I know a lot the, of them. Okay, but also okay. Like so that there's hope. Not all Russians yeah, put, put milk Nepal. in the tea. They, really? Like, yeah, we oh, would put half water, half milk. Oh, and spices. Oh, so good. It's really good. I really dislike milk in tea. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> getting a life while getting a PhD with R. Mm. Research breaks. Research you breaks. breaks from research. <laughs> um, questions. Bad questions. And then ways to construct your home. Roomba. Roomba. Yeah. Ways to construct your home? Yeah, you know, it cleans your house. Oh, the little machine? The machine thing. It's <laughs> called Roomba. Right? Or, yeah. or, like, or like room. Room, yeah. It's important to have rooms. Room decoration. Room decor. Yeah, room decor. Room decor. That's, a yeah, good that's one. very nice. Yeah. Oh, decor. That's a nice word. Room decor. Decor. Bad questions. Uh, Bad questions. Yes. And then we have the data collection. Oh, how are you so hard? I don't know. It just feels like. Oh, no. no. No, but the, the bad questions could have started with respond. Right, that's good. And then, and then respond very... without thinking. Well, actually, well, I don't know. 
I don't know if that's a okay, yeah. respond without thinking. No, right. sometimes it's a yeah, that's thing true. of research because you want good. to yeah, you yeah. want because you want to know what's like the first instinct. I know so much about social science. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel oh like if God. you say to a person respond without thinking, that's exactly when they start thinking. <laughs> that's like true. you can't you that's can't counteract these kind of things. I think if you want to get a person to think about it, then you have to say respond without thinking because then they're definitely going to think about their answer. <laughs> Yeah, you see, you know people much more than we do. <laughs> but about um about this sort of getting a life without uh, not without getting a PhD, sorry, <laughs> while getting a PhD, um, you are really involved in theater. Yes, I am. Um, so I'm part of a theater group called Soup Troop, and we try to do at least two performances a year. We are actually working on. Um, on a show right now and in fact once I get home from this I'm gonna prep for tomorrow's rehearsal but yeah that's that's kind of a thing uh, that I think a lot about that PhD does take a lot of your time and very often there seems to be this emphasis on academic life as one that's supposed to just take over your entire existence and how do you find a way to do something that's not academic and still be able to be a successful academic. That's something I, I think a lot about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to to make the separation. Yeah. But I do think that theater is particularly good because you can use a lot of what you've learned in your own social science background and apply that to theater, just in the way you analyze texts and in the way you think about how people interact in real life. Yeah, and also probably you know much more how to impersonificate into some other some other character than than for example a non social scientist would know. I don't know. I, I think like just basic amount of empathy is usually okay for for an amateur actor. Mm. Empathy. Which we can have, you know. I don't have it. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. But what's your next um, performance so we can advertise it? Oh, yeah. Um, so in February, there's going to be a play called Apologia. And it is marginally related to what I'm doing in my PhD because it is about a woman who's an academic and a social activist and about how she had to choose between her family and her beliefs, and how that impacted her family. Mm. Oh. So February, a soup troop. We can put the link underneath. Yes, the... yes, definitely. It sounds very interesting. And uh, are you the main character? I'm the director. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. Um, and actually, talking about theater and how it could help you, I was thinking it really is good, at least in my experience, because I've done some amateur theater, actually, with you. Yeah that it's really good when uh, you have to present in a conference. Really? It, it just makes you a bit more... Um, well, you get exposed to being on stage. So I think it's, a, it's an expressing yourself and being okay making silly things and, and moving yourself. And, you know, it's something we're not... I think, you know, sort of the physicality of theater is also really important. Okay, you are just really great on stage because I've seen you multiple times, so you are not, you know, you're not allowed to talk about this. No, subject. but I think it's because I've done theater. I think if I okay. hadn't done any theater, it would have been harder. You uh -huh. know, the first time I, I did a public speech, which was not, in, you know, not in a typical science conference, and I was dreading the, the stage, I remembered, well, if I've done a play before, this will be okay. Okay. So I think it does help. And theater can be a way of data collection for social scientists. 
Oh, oh how? Uh, you can ask people who are participating in your research to do little scenes, to write their own little productions, and then use that as data and analyze it. In fact, you can kind of analyze through theater and discuss it in a group, creating a more inclusive way that your kind of participants in your research, they're not just objects of your research, but they are active contributors to how you analyze the data. Mm. Oh, actually, a really quick question. Just when you graduate with your PhD, um, what is your thesis? How is your thesis constructed? So it's going to be four articles, hopefully four. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done three now. And then a summary chapter that explains the connection between all the articles. Okay. That's the way we have it. Well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, good luck with your theater and with your PhD. Thank you. This was so much fun. Yeah. It was. Thanks yeah. so much for having and me. And we learned guys. so much, Stephanie. High five, but like very silent. Okay, we do bro feast instead of high five. <laughs> but now, Erica, can you share with us our little anecdote? Yes. And, and this time we're going to talk about the comment section of YouTube. Uh, so apparently what we're going to talk about is about YouTubers that do videos or create YouTube content uh, about science and STEM in general. STEM being science, technology, engineering and mathematics, I think, yes. Um, Yeah, so STEM-related content. And this uh, study started, uh, was uh, conducted by uh, an Australian Australian researcher in uh, science communication called Inoka I'm not sure about how to pronounce this name. Uh, and she had to go through 23,005 YouTube comments under these science communication videos. That must have been painful. Yeah, it must have been very painful, especially think about all the YouTube trolls. Yeah. She, and she started this research thinking that YouTube, there is a lot of discussion about YouTube being a kind of unpleasant environment for female creators because of the comment section. And, and so she started to uh, check the implications of this statement regarding science communication in particular. And she indeed found that there is a tough environment for female creators on YouTube. Uh, in science. So the comment section for female hosts of YouTube uh, videos had uh, turned out to have more comments that were both more positive and more negative. So you mean more extreme? Yeah, exactly, more extreme. And she, uh, this researcher, she also divided all these comments into six categories, which were positive, negative, hostile, sexist, appearance-based, and neutral and she found out that uh, about 14 percent of comments uh, for towards female uh, content creators uh, were uh, negative or critical while per man that for men that was that percentage was six percent and also uh, the comments about appearance so the sexual or sexist comments were four five percent four point five percent for female compared to one point four percent for male. But at the same time, female hosts also add more comments, likes, or subscribes per view, uh, and also a slightly higher percentage of positive comments compared to men. So it's a kind of a weird dynamics, but it indeed turned out that being a female 
content creator on YouTube is much harder than being a man. So what do you think about that? Comments coming from women were more positive. I don't think she analyzed the gender yeah, of, of, the, of the commenters. Only no. the YouTube presenters or uh, okay. YouTube content creators. Okay. Uh, so like, for example, uh, in uh, videos, uh, in comments uh, for TED Talks, uh, when the presenter uh, was a woman, the, about the 15% of comments were about the woman, like about herself, not about her topic. Mm -hmm. And this percentage was about 10% for, for a man. So, you know, commenting about the person themselves rather than the topic they're talking about. Which is not surprising, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so now that was kind of a sad uh, story. <laughs> That's, a sad story. <laughs> That's a sad story. So let's say something very happy <laughs> to conclude this episode. <laughs> And Stephanie, we have a, uh, your TEDx talk on YouTube. Shall we go through, through your comments? Oh, actually, I don't have... I think... I, well, last time I checked, and that was probably a year ago. Um, there were maybe three comments. But one of the comments was, which is not, again, surprising, is about how climate change is not real and how scientists are trying to just play God or something. Like, it's something like this. I got the comment. But that's okay. That would have been classified as a neutral comment. That's so it was true. About it, wasn't about it, was about, it was about the topic. It was about the topic. So, so thank you, climate change, change deniers. deniers. Thank you <laughs> for thank observing my topic and not me. Thank you for not being sexist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> true. Yes. Uh, Anastasia, this was a very interesting topic to talk about, and yes. you and yeah, you definitely didn't need to be scared that, as you said at the beginning of the episode, because you did a really good job, and, Thank and you. we learned a lot. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And it's the last episode for the year. Oh yes, that's true. Because we decided that we are taking a little Christmas break. Yes, but it's um happy holiday season yes so everybody be happy for christmas be good people try to make the world better and do your research and write your papers <laughs> that's not happy ending D don't do, <laughs> don't do it over the holidays take a break <laughs> yes get a life <laughs> get a life okay thank you and uh... and yeah see you in 2019 <laughs> oh and i forgot if you want to read more about anastasia's topic of research uh, she wrote a very interesting public science version of, of uh, an, an actual article that you got submitted and probably published already? Yes. Uh, so we will link that in the description box. Yes. Okay. Now for reals is bye. Oh, and make a... <laughs> 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 um, and on the top... Uh, on, on following the topic of today and, and holiday season, make a warm home for everyone. Wow. I wish a warm home forever. Wow, much love. Heart, 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 heart. Heart, heart. <laughs> the science is